Well, it's time to move into our, our scripture reading and, and teaching time. And so joining us via video are our scripture readers. And so uh, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. They'll be in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you want, you can follow along as they read. Uh, so guys, let's go ahead and roll our scripture reading. I'm reading from Matthew 5. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for God, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, to our scripture readers, reminder that everyone's invited to send in scripture reading videos and participate in that way. We want to kind of take ownership of the Sermon on the Mount during this, uh, this series and this season, and so instructions for that will be in our Sunday recap newsletter. Well, when we, uh, when we lay out our, our preaching schedule, often we're working, you know, months in advance. And so when we, when we said, let's do the Sermon on the Mount and let's do the Beatitudes, we kind of you know, we didn't know what the world was going to look like uh, in, in this moment. And so we're coming actually to a, to a beatitude that's about justice. And we're at this moment where, um, where it's actually, it's very emotionally charged, right? Justice is, is kind of front of mind uh, for, for everyone because there's a lot of stuff going on right now. And so you might be wondering, you know, what's Dave's stance on this or South Langley's stance on that and... Um, we're, we're not going to make any, any partisan statements uh, here on our, on our church platform. That's not our, that's not our desire or our intent. Um, what we're going to do today, and I, I think this is going to help us even as we're in the midst of a society-wide justice conversation, what we're going to do today is just let the Bible speak. We're going we're to uh, have some teaching on what the Bible has to say about this particular topic, and, and we're, I'm just going to invite us to let it press on us today and let, a, let it challenge us today uh, as, we, as we go out into a week where we're taking part in, in society. So today we're looking at the fourth of Jesus' Beatitudes, which says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Or another translation says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, for they will be filled. And already right there, you can see, uh, you can kind of get a glimpse of what is the most, uh, the biggest and most important idea for today. Some Bibles translate this word that Jesus is using as justice, and some translate it as righteousness. And that needs to be a signal to us 
as readers, and that's why it's a good idea to read more than one translation, that, that's a signal to us that whatever Jesus is talking about here, it's something that's perhaps hard to encapsulate with, with just a single English word. And so you might see these different translations and say, well, is Jesus talking about justice or righteousness? And the answer, of course, is both. Because in the Bible, both in the Hebrew and, and the Greek, the, the words and the ideas that, uh, of righteousness also include the idea of justice. In the Bible, the idea of righteousness includes the idea of justice. That really, really matters. Because righteousness, of course, is a theological word. It's a, it, or at least we've made it one. We've made it kind of a word that's just about, you know, me and my status uh, before God, and, and it's the kind of word that you can talk about in church pews and, and seminary libraries and Christian blogs that no one reads, and you can sit behind a pulpit or a keyboard and talk about righteousness as a theological concept, but what you have to understand is in the Bible, righteousness isn't just this, this me and God thing. It's not just a theological concept. Righteousness includes justice. It's actually a relational term in the Bible. It's not about uh, whether you lived up to, you know, the particular stipulations of like a legal document. That's how we would tend to use it in the modern Western world. In, in, uh, in the Bible, righteousness or justice is, it's a way of saying this person has fulfilled or honored the relationship they have with someone else. Whether that's a, a king-subject relationship, a human-god relationship, a neighbor-neighbor relationship. When we talk about justice or, or righteousness in the Bible, um, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about honoring that relationship. So in the Bible, there is no such thing as personal righteousness without interpersonal justice. They're, they're inextricably tied together. So this righteousness-justice word is all about honoring our relationship with another. In other words, it's, it's a question of what we owe to each other. When we talk about justice, when we talk about righteousness, that's what we're talking about. And it turns out the Bible has a lot to say about that. So I'm going to take you on a little tour here. So the Bible starts out, and, and it's interesting, uh, the Bible starts out in the book of Genesis with, uh, with a couple of stories that uh, part of what they do is they, they're kind of a meditation on, what we, uh, on our right relationships to God, the earth, and each other. So we start out and we have the Adam and Eve story, and part of what that story does is it, it shows us what we owe to God, obedience and worship, and what we owe to the earth, our, our care over creation, and then after Adam and Eve, we get the, the very next story that we get is their two sons, Cain and Abel. And the Cain and Abel story is a meditation on what we human beings owe to each other. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain becomes jealous of Abel, so he leads his brother out into a field and he kills him. One man lets his unfair resentment toward another man lead him to murder. God confronts Cain and he says, where is your brother? And, and Cain famously says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And, and the way the story is built, 
there's kind of this incredible irony. There's this two-layered meaning to the story that if you really get it, it's just, it's just devastating. Because we're all on the same page that Cain should not have murdered Abel. Even Cain agrees with that. That's why he's trying to cover it up. But if the story was just, oh, he, he killed him and he shouldn't have killed him, then this story wouldn't have haunted people the way that it has for thousands of years. The power of the story is that when God confronts Cain, Cain tries to prove that he's a good brother, prove that he's honored the relationship, prove that he's just by expressing indifference. Am I my brother's keeper, he says? Now understand the full meaning of what Cain is saying here. He's implicitly saying, if Abel found himself in trouble, I'm not responsible for that. It's Abel's fault. Maybe Abel should have watched himself. Maybe Abel had no business being in that field in the first place. As readers, we're meant to see these kind of two layers, and that second layer is the part that really gets us because, because we're all on the same page. Cain should not have murdered Abel. Okay. But then there's this other thing. Am I my brother's keeper? And that's harder because some of us will infrequently do violence against other human beings. But all of us will frequently choose indifference toward our fellow human beings. And this story is challenging us, saying both are contrary to the heart of God. Both are contrary to what we owe each other. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. You should keep track of your brother and care for your brother. And that just, that just uh, further highlights how, profound, how profoundly you have betrayed your brother, how profoundly you have failed to honor your relationship with Abel. You didn't kill him and you owed him indifference. You killed him and you owed him your active care. God replies to Cain, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And in Hebrew, that word for cries out uh, is, is the word used for a racket, a din, a noise that drowns out coherent speech. It's the word that they used to describe thunder. Here we are in the first moment of injustice between human beings. And God says, this act of injustice is a cacophony. It thunders in my ears. I hate hearing it. And he winds up punishing Cain for what he's done. Here we are at the beginning of the Bible and we have this, this initial story about what we owe to one another. And the answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper, your neighbor's keeper. We owe each other nothing less than our active, positive efforts to protect each other from harm and help each other flourish. Fast forward to the book of Exodus. We wind up with a family uh, which grows into a nation called the Israelites. They live in Egypt for several generations and eventually they find themselves on the wrong side of an empire. And, uh, and, and the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, he, see, he, he, he sees these people, this group of foreigners, 
within his borders. And Exodus 1 tells us that that he did not know or understand them and that he feared them and that for those reasons he chose to enslave them. Isn't it true that ignorance and fear have been responsible for much of the worst injustice and oppression and violence in human history? Particularly, what we see in Pharaoh here is when you marry uh, ignorance and fear and power. That's a dangerous combination. God eventually raises up a leader named Moses. And when he calls Moses, he says, uh, it says, Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them and rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Here again, God sees injustice and he clocks it. He notices it. And he intervenes and he frees his people. And, and if you know the Exodus story, that's the story. He leads them out of slavery and toward the promised land, as he's talking about here. And as they're on their way to the promised land, he gives them commandments. He gives them uh, what's called the Torah, the law. And he's essentially preloading them with right behavior so that when they reach the promised land and set up this new nation state, that they will already know how they should behave. And so you get all these commandments in the first, it's, it's in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in the Bible. Um, and if you, if you read them, there's this recurring theme in the midst of these um, of these commandments where God tells them, remember you were foreigners, remember you were slaves. Leviticus 19, for instance, God says, don't oppress a foreigner. Remember, in Egypt, you were foreigners. In Deuteronomy 15, God says, if you have Hebrew slaves, you make sure you free them after they serve you for six years. And don't just, don't just send them off empty-handed. Send them off with a bunch of food and, and wine and money. Like, like provide for them. Bless them. Because remember, you were slaves in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 24, God says, give justice to the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Remember that you once were slaves in Egypt. So the plan for this, this new nation of Israel, as they set up in this new land, was that they would be a place where the poor and powerless and the outsiders were well cared for. And Moses is really clear. He says, don't forget. Remember, you were foreigners. Remember, you were slaves. Moses is calling on these guys to uh, exercise a, a, a sort of historic empathy. He's calling them to remember how history works. It kind of goes in cycles. Sometimes you're, you're you know, sometimes you're at the top of the cycle. Sometimes you're at the bottom. Like, like for the Israelites, and probably for all of us today, if you, if you trace back your ancestry far enough, you'll find that some of your ancestors uh, were doing pretty well for themselves, and some of your ancestors were barely scraping by, it just depends on where you are in history. We who are privileged have this tendency to forget the suffering of the poor and powerless. We get drunk on our own quality of life. 
and our privilege quarantines us from their suffering. So we forget. Moses is pleading with the Israelites. He says, remember. Remember you were foreigners. Remember you were slaves. Remember as you drive in your shiny car with heated seats past the drug-addicted and mentally ill of the downtown east side. Remember. Remember as you wear fashionable clothes made in a sweatshop. Remember as you talk about the fate of refugees in an air-conditioned room. Remember that that could have easily been you. And remember that at different points in history, that was you. So the calling of Israel then was actually to be this huge leap forward in the way that a nation state could operate. Instead of dominating and oppressing and consuming, they could be a place of justice, a place that honored the relationship between human beings a place where people decided to be their brothers and sisters' keeper. A place where people gave others what we owe to each other. And I wish I could tell you they lived up to that calling, but they didn't. They moved into the promised land, and as time passed, uh, Israel grew and, and w- became well-established, and eventually they, they became powerful. They entered into what people saw as a golden age under King David and especially King Solomon. It was a golden age uh, for the elites. The reality, if you read the stories, is that it was, uh, it was a time of great wealth and power for the elites. And it was based on taking advantage of the lower classes. Solomon famously uh, built two things, uh, the temple in Jerusalem and his own palace. Both of them were amazing. Both of them were famous. Both of them were celebrated uh, across the known world. They were built on slave labor. 1 Kings chapter 9 has a paragraph that says, This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, the royal palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And then, if you read on, it it goes on to list nation after nation of non-Israelite people groups that Solomon enslaved for these building projects. Solomon had used his military political machinery to round up everyone in Israel who was a different race and enslave them for his building projects. All of this in the nation that God had commanded, don't take advantage of foreigners. Don't oppress foreigners. Remember that you were foreigners. Remember that you were slaves. It's amazing how our power and our privilege give us amnesia. The Solomon story also shows us one of the great perversions of justice in the Bible, and that's when religion becomes complicit in injustice. Solomon builds this temple to a just, merciful, liberating God whom whom they claim to worship, but he builds it using slave labor. They have this amazing temple, this amazing place to worship Yahweh, and they, and, and they think it's a national religious triumph. 
And it's like, yeah, you gave God a building, but you broke his commandments. Is this really a triumph? Is it really a triumph when the things that we do to serve God cause immense damage and suffering to human beings who bear his image? Is it really a triumph when on Sunday we sing of a God who is gracious and compassionate and Monday to Friday we embody only wrath and domination to our fellow human beings? Is it really a triumph when we enforce our vision of biblical values using bullets and bloodshed. For the next few centuries after Solomon, Israel continues to live this kind of two-faced reality where they're, they're religiously uh, pious some of the time, but they're also incredibly unjust. And during this time, you see the rise of the Old Testament prophets and if you read the, the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll find that again and again, they're actually trying to call Israel and Judah to account for, for this injustice. And specifically, they condemn the fact, the prophets condemn the fact that, that, that these people think that their religious piety excuses or covers over their their rampant injustice. For example, Isaiah 58 says this, Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. We fasted before you. Why aren't you impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves, and don't you even notice it? I will tell you why I respond. This is God speaking. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap. You cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think that this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting that I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. I use that last verse when I ask my in-laws to babysit. Isaiah says to Israel, God sees your fasting. He sees your religious ritual. And he's not impressed. You want to impress God? You want to be successful in God's eyes? You want to fulfill what God requires? Clean up your injustice. There's another uh, great passage uh, in Amos chapter 5. God, at the beginning of that chapter, God uh, lists a bunch of injustices. He says, you trample the poor and, and several other things. And then uh, he comes up and he says, uh, he says, I hate all your show and pretense. 
the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. In Genesis 4, God's ears couldn't stand the sound of Abel's blood crying out from the field. In Amos 5, God's ears can't stand the sound of his people singing his praises while trampling the poor and denying them justice. We in the rich, consumerist, individualist, privileged West have privatized and personalized faith. It's just about me and my personal relationship with God. And we need to let verses like this push on us. We cannot believe that we're spiritually successful, that God views us with favor if our faith is only about me and God. It must include the way I treat other human beings. So we need to look hard at the ways that religion can distract us from injustice, injustice and sadly the ways that religion actually contributes to injustice. May our churches have no blood in their foundations. The prophets called Israel and Judah to account for their hypocrisy and oppression, uh, but intoxicated by power, the kings and leaders mostly didn't listen. Eventually, uh, they were conquered and taken into exile, and only then did they have a moment of self-reflection. Only then did they begin to see. But it was too late because once again they were oppressed and powerless. Powerless. They would rebuild eventually, but it would never be the same, and they would live until the time of Jesus and beyond under the boot of various bigger and stronger empires, taxed almost to starvation, their human rights and religious liberties uh, constantly disregarded, imprisoned without trial, voiceless. They had had their time at the top. They had had their time in power. They had had their opportunity to show forth the liberating, gracious, merciful heart of God. They had had their chance to show the world a different way of being a nation state. And they squandered it. Jesus comes on the scene. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. And when, when he says that, all this justice stuff is in the background. Jesus is speaking to people who have been called to justice and who didn't choose justice while they were on top. Now they're on the bottom. And oh, they're, they're longing for some justice now. History tells us that the people who hear Jesus say these words uh, will not receive justice in their lifetime. They're, they're ruled by the Romans, and that's a, that's a bad situation. And the, the oppression and tension with the Roman Empire will escalate for about 40 years after Jesus, eventually erupting in a, a failed and bloody rebellion. So frankly, most of the people who hear Jesus say this will not receive justice in their lifetimes. Which raises the question, how does Jesus have the gall to stand up in front of these people 
and promise justice. He, st- he stands up in front of them and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. And it's like, no, they won't. The thing to remember, again, is Jesus' gospel. Jesus' gospel, in chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus walked around proclaiming this gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. God's space is invading our space. Now that's important because that's the context for Jesus' promise here. The promise Jesus is making here is not you, you people standing around me right now uh, will receive justice. The promise Jesus is making here is the kingdom of heaven is near. Something is dawning right now with the coming of Jesus. God's space, the space where God's will is done, where God's character is embodied, where God's just heart is lived out. That space is now invading the earth. And the kingdom of heaven is a place of justice for all. So be assured, you who are struck down in the fields. Be, in, be assured, you who are enslaved in the building of temples. Be assured, you who are uh, in, caught in the stranglehold of empire. The coming of Jesus is the inauguration of a story that ends in justice for all. But for now, that means we're living in an in-between time. We're living in a time where the kingdom of heaven is near, but it's not fully here yet. And so we still live amidst oppression and poverty and inequality and racism. So how do we live now? And the answer actually comes a few paragraphs down in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is going to be a key point for the whole series. So check this out. A few paragraphs down in chapter 6, you will see the Lord's Prayer. In the middle of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is. In heaven. Jesus has made this announcement that the kingdom of heaven is drawing near, and part of that announcement includes justice for all. And, and here, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he says he's teaching them to pray for, to lean into, to long for, dare I say it, to work for this new reality that God is unfolding here in human history. The invitation is for us to get on board with living out the reality of the kingdom of heaven here and now. That was the challenge for Jesus' followers in the first century and it's the challenge for Jesus' followers, followers in the 21st century. May we not forsake that calling. May we be people who live out the values of the coming kingdom of God. May we be people who choose to be our brothers and sisters' keepers. Let me leave you with some reflection questions. Encourage you to take these this week and and just spend some time with them. Talk about them with your life group if you like. Number one, do I feel an inner hunger and thirst for justice? Why or why not? Let's take some time this week. Do a heart check. Number two, where am I choosing indifference over engagement like Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? 
Number three, where am I living in fear of what I don't understand like the Pharaoh rather than being open to learning? What a different story it would have been if Pharaoh had had an open heart toward the the Israelites. Number four, is my life characterized by religious ritual or by hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice? Number five, what are some ways that religion can cover over or be complicit in injustice? And number six, where might God be calling me to lean into the dawning of the just kingdom of heaven? I encourage you to let these stories and these questions press on you this week as we move, move forward through a justice moment as a society and as we seek to embody the heart of God uh, to our fellow human beings. Let me, let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are, that you are near to the lowly and the brokenhearted. We thank you that you've called us to justice. We thank you for inviting us to participate in the coming of your kingdom. May we be people who, who, embody, um, who embody your, your heart to this world and who live out what we owe to you and what we owe to this earth and what we owe to each other as we see in Scripture and as you've called us uh, to live in each of our individual contexts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.